on the show today, games for folks with more money than brains, games for procrastinators, and games to question the nature of free will. In three, two, one. Alex, we are so back. We are back. And we're gone again. Bye, everybody. And we're gone. Sure, shortest episode ever. Uh, hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us once again on Total Pupple Knockdown. I am Nathan. I am Alex, and I am recovering from having COVID for the first time ever. Happens to the best of us. I've already had my, I've already had my time. In the uh, in the COVID sun, so I'm letting the spotlight shine on you this time. Thanks. Take it back. <laughs> nope. I will. I will say notably, it is not from you or that family get together we had the other week. It is actually from uh, stupid people I work with. You didn't really have to qualify that as stupid people. You could have just said people you work with. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Co-workers are pretty much by their very nature uh, in that boat. Now that you're feeling slightly uh, more... Human. Human, yeah. Uh, I guess we'll we'll try to do an episode. That'll be fun, right? Cry is the optimal word here today. Perfect. Alex, you have presented me... With something that you got from uh, Clayton Calix, correct? Yes, our frequent friend of the comment section, Clayton Calix. Excellent. So, what do you know about this uh, subject? That uh, uh, nothing. Yeah. nothing. I know that he said it would be an interesting one for us to look at. Okay. Well, he and has. I, I know what the title is. Yeah. But that's it. So, uh, Clayton Calix has been so lovely as to give us a link for something that we are supposed to look at. So, I am going to a look at... A suggestion for the show. We love these. If you have a suggestion for the show, feel free to send it to us somewhere. We'll get it. Absolutely. Uh, and this article I have now pulled up is... New Steam Game Costs One Million Dollars. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Uh, an early access Steam game that first released earlier this year is currently priced at over $1 million on Valve's storefront. And for just clarification, for people who are just listening, this is a Game Rant article from Dalton Cooper, and it was published uh, August 4th. An early access co-op horror game, already I hate this, <laughs> on Steam. It's currently priced at an outrageous $1 million, making it one of the most expensive games on the platform. Uh, the game initially received negative reviews when it was listed at a cheaper price, but the recent increase in price has led to mixed reception, with some positive user ratings, albeit mostly in a joking manner. No. Joke reviews no. in Steam? Never. And the other highlight is, despite its hefty price tag, the developer has been giving away codes through Discord which has created some interest, and they attract more people to try the game. I have a question. 
Uh, I also have a comment, but go ahead. Yeah, no, my question is, remember when we uh, went over that thing about gifts and paying taxes on gifts? Yes. If if I'm given uh, a code as a giveaway on a game that's priced at a million dollars, do I do I have to pay taxation on? I I want to say no, you don't on a Steam code as it's a digital gift and has no inherent like actual value. See, you'd say that, but the article that we had looked at at the time was uh, a lifetime subscription to Xbox uh, Game Pass, which is which also, also digital. Has... It's also yeah, a digital game subscription, so, um... but has an estimated value. So I guess <laughs> the question would be... Yeah. I guess the question would be, mm. for someone who knows... Can I get Legal Eagle to watch this video and tell yeah, me if you're gifted a steam code for a game that is priced at a million dollars but is definitely not valued at a million dollars yeah what also i don't know if anyone's ever taken that idea of oh gifting someone steam codes and like having to pay taxes on it but we live in new hampshire where we don't pay taxes on yeah products we buy anyway so i don't i mm. don't know mm. yeah uh, that's a that's a question for um, legal minds that are above us. But anyway, maybe yes. this is a question we delve into a bit more with actual thought on it. Yes, at a later point in time. <laughs> in the meantime, though, uh, what was your comment that you wanted to make before I got on my subject? So yeah. I said, despite its hefty price, uh, price tag, developers have been giving away Steam codes through mm -hmm. Discord, which has created some interest and may attract more people to try the game. Um, Mm -hmm. What people? Are these the people that you've given the codes to that are looking to try the game? Mm -hmm. Because I don't see anyone that has a million dollars spending it to try your game. No. So it's, it's no. really only generating hype Yeah. by process of giving it away for free and pricing it at a million dollars. The thing I don't see as... Like, we'll read the article, but the thing that I don't see as, like, logistically sound is even if they did, like, a sale at 99% off the list price, that's still not gonna be very good. That's still, like, $10,000 at 99% yeah. off. Well, uh, the trick is you... you... Do a hundred percent giveaway for free. That's what you pick up when they do an epic, uh, you know, yeah. the, the epic freebie. Let's just read the article, find out maybe this answers half of our questions. Let's see. Early access Steam co-op horror game Spooky Men is currently listed at a million dollars on Valve's digital distribution platform. Publishers have the freedom to just set their own frame. Yeah, they they're trying to shake it up so they don't say Steam yeah. 50 times in a row. I know that I from when I used to be in journalism, but publishers have the freedom to set their own prices on Steam. And while the vast majority are reasonable about it, yeah, uh, there are some outliers that sell their games at astronomical prices. Not too long ago, Steam game The Hidden and Unknown made headlines after it was discovered that it was selling for, well, $1,999.90. Whew! Glad. If it got to 2000 yep. that would have been quite too a... Too much. Too much, Don't yeah. worry, that new DLC is $0.10. Cents. Yeah. 
<laughs> that gets you there. And only offered a couple hours of gameplay. Wow, that's a that's a high dollar per hour ratio. Uh, the uh, hidden and unknown remains listed at a ridiculous price, but Spooky Men's one million dollar price tag really blows the hidden and unknown out of the water. Developed and published by Bloody Bear, great name for a dev house though. Spooky Men is an early access game. It's still an early access game. Yeah. You're paying a million dollars for an early access uh, co-op board game. Well, because I'm sure they have a roadmap of content, Alex. Aren't you just paying for the roadmap? You need the oh, roadmap. Yeah, so I, w I would like to say the roadmap probably says publish game for a million dollars. Make bank. Yeah. Profit. Wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah, Question mark. Profit. profit. Um, uh, it's an early access game that first released on May 9th. Uh, it seems like uh, that when it first launched, it was listed at a far more reasonable price and was even listed for as low as 59 cents at one point. Okay, that sounds more rational. According to SteamDB, those that tried the game at the time gave it negative reviews. That's not good if you're getting a 59 cent game and getting negative reviews for it. Uh, but since the massive price increase, its overall reception has turned from negative to mixed. The more recent user ratings for the game have been positive, though they are mostly joke reviews. If people are not familiar with Steam, I do have to say that there are games that I have picked up, or that I have seen, where it has a very, very positive review, and people might have really liked it, but the reviews are not serious about it, regardless. Mm -hmm. um, so, be be aware. Even though, like, Pseudo-Regalia is, like, a great, great little Metroidvania game that they were giving away, most of the comments there are talking uh, about, uh, you know, how there's, there's, like, a goat girl that's the main protagonist. <laughs> um, so, Wait, yeah. Well, that's... That's interesting, though, because, like, even Iron Pineapple just played that and was like, wow, this is actually a really fantastic oh, game. it's an actually really good game. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's actually it's, uh, great. <laughs> yeah, 3D platformer, though. Yeah, I was, uh, I was actually really happy when I saw Iron Pineapple played that. It's like, oh, good, I'm not alone. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, according to users on Reddit, oh, God. Uh, oh, the game's developer has been giving uh, away codes through Discord, hence some people have been able to play it despite its ridiculous $1 million price tag. Okay, do they tell me what- okay. They're gonna tell me what this game actually is now. Finally. <laughs> okay, before they tell you, take a guess what you think this game is. Okay, I'm seeing the, the screenshot. What was that? Uh, Phasmophobia? Phasmagoria? Mm -hmm. Whatever it was? Phasmophobia. I was right the first time, okay. Yeah. It, it looks like that. Okay. <laughs> Go on now. As for what the game actually is, Spooky Men is an eight-player online multiplayer game where players have to survive in a haunted house. Players can play as humans and as a ghost. And the, the humans having to work together to escape the house while the ghost tries to sabotage them. Oh, so it's an asymmetrical horror game so like kind of so thinking uh like texas chainsaw massacre or friday the 13th probably yeah. or, or uh dead by daylight on paper it sounds something like phasmophobia no <laughs> shit but with an asymmetrical multiplayer twist yeah it sounds like a ton of other games 
which isn't necessarily a terrible idea, but early views indicate that the execution was lacking. Of course, with Spooky Men being early access, there's always a chance that I could get substantial updates that genuinely improve the experience. I don't care what updates it is. It does not justify the price tag. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not happening. I could, I could buy, like, waterfront property on Wimpasaki for the price that this game costs. That's not something I think is a great investment. Okay, and while the $1 million price tag may seem like it will keep people from trying the game, it may actually end up drawing more people to it than ever before. Who? <laughs> people that are giving away the, uh, getting those free stinkies. Yeah, but how is that a... Okay, let me just finish up the article. It has already generated some interest in Spooky Men on social media, and now more people may want to try their hand at getting the $1 million co-op horror game through a Discord giveaway. So, okay, then, is is the model just overprice your game into oblivion and then try to give away the game for free? Maybe? It, it, I don't see how they're going to sell any copies ever then. That's a terrible business model. I have to be honest with you. That's a bad business model. I, I, I prefer the business model of giving away the game for free and then charging for things that you can get in the game. Like, give away the game, but charge for DLC or cosmetics. Like League of Legends, their business model works really well. Sure. Yeah. Wouldn't it be ser- wouldn't it be terrible if it turned out that they tried an add-on pack and they made you char- they charged for the add-on? Because <laughs> I've I've seen that the actual price is technically nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine dollars and ninety-nine cents. So there could be a penny DLC, right? So that we can get yeah. to the one mil. I think that that would be fine. You know? Yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd pay a penny for DLC. Or and this is just a thought. Just a, just a random thought to Bloody Bear, just to, throwing it out there. Um, you could do what Vampire Survivors did and uh, just charge $5 and make a, uh, a really good game people like and then um, make money on it. And then have everybody copy your game format for the next six months. For the next six months. <laughs> and, then, and then eventually do release some add-ons that you can sell for like three bucks each. And then make a, a bank on all of that, too, for yeah. the three other things that you put out there. You could do that model, too. I generally don't like horror games, multiplayer games, or asymmetrical games like this. So this is going to be a hard pass for me. Um, I, I, I sit there. The one time I actually tried game a game like this, I think, was... Um, when Evolve was out, if you remember Evolve from back in the day. Um, Wasn't that uh, the players versus a monster? Yeah, and you could play the monster, yeah. you could play the thing. I didn't have anyone to play with, so it was all like AI at the time. Uh, and then I also did try uh, that Friday the 13th one, but only so I could see what it felt like to actually play Jason Voorhees. <laughs> uh, or that's... That's all I really cared about trying. Besides that, like, I, I don't have any real desire to play this kind of a game. I have not played Phasmophobia, nor do I have any interest in ever doing so. Same. Yeah. Not really a fan of the social deduction and, like, games that require that level of teamwork, honestly. And here's the other thing that I'm realizing is a big problem. 
it's not just selling the one copy for a million dollars. This is an eight-player online multiplayer no. game. To get eight people, they all have to buy the game, right? You don't get like eight codes, right? Like it's not like Don't Starve Together, where you you get a code for a friend when you right, buy. Which is honestly also a really good. Yeah, thing. for a multiplayer game, yeah, it's kind of necessary to have other people playing the game to make it work. So. Wouldn't it be sad if you just had the one guy who was like, I'm going to buy the most expensive game. Like, he's buying one of those Rolexes for a jillion dollars to show his status, and he gets into the game and no one else is there because no one else can afford to play the game. Then, then you get into the scenario of the uh, Dead Online Worlds thing. Mm-hmm. I'm the only person playing in this multiplayer game. Whoa. And it's like, yeah, because it costs a million dollars. Hello. This is Editing Nathan. And I wanted to tell you that I have an update. That Game Rant article, as we mentioned, was published on August 4th. And that made me start thinking that I needed to go and see the actual store page for myself for Spooky Men. And I have some amazing news for everybody. It no longer costs a million dollars. They have actually slashed the price to a very reasonable $200. That's right. $200. Now note, when I loaded up Steam, they let me know that uh, the Pandora's Box Borderland Collection, which has Borderlands 1, 2, 3, pre-sequel, and Tales of the Borderlands, the new Tales of the Borderlands, with all of the expansions, the DLC, and Season Passes, was currently on sale and was slashed to $60, just if you're looking for a price comparison. But at any rate, yes, Spooky Men no longer costs a million dollars, which just makes you realize that we must actually be heading into a recession, because once upon a time it was valued at a million dollars, and now you can pick it up for 200 Who knows what it will be next month? So uh, thank you to developer Bloody Bear for being very pro-consumer and cutting the price of your game by several decibel points. Is that the takeaway? Yes, we think. Okay, back to the episode. I don't think this is a very good idea. That's my takeaway. Uh, Alex, your thoughts? Gift me a gift code and I'll see if I have to pay taxes on it and then I'll sue you. Yeah, seriously. I need to know if that is actually a thing. If you get a code for a game, if there is a statute that you have to pay a percentage of that as uh, like a like a lottery tax. When we had the guy that uh, bought the Game Pass realized that he'd, he'd still have to be paying essentially in taxes 10 years of what the Game Pass would normally cost. Big question mark over my head about how this yeah. uh, shakes out. The problem is that your two options are that nobody's going to buy the game, and then you're going to have to give away the codes for free, at which point you're making no profit. Or you're trying to, like, sell it and and say that, oh, it's 99.999 whatever percent off, and you'll only sell copies in a very limited span of time. Right. Or you actually do think somebody's going to pay you a million dollars... And so your audience is like three people 
which in an eight-player co-op game, in an eight-player co-op game, let us know if you would buy this game. Yeah, and if you have the money to buy this game, check us out on Patreon. We have some, <laughs> have some extra content for, for you. Every cost. Where for one million dollars, we will make a better game. For 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 one million dollars, we will make a short film documentary about the making of the imaginary game that we haven't made yet. Exactly. That's what we'll do. So, Alex, you might remember that uh, a month or two ago, I was lamenting that I was having trouble getting through a certain game. And, yes. Uh, and a lot of people, surprisingly enough, uh, shared in my lamentations, as it turns out. They did. In the that, comments. That turned out to be a pretty popular sentiment, actually. Yeah, surprisingly enough, it was nice to know that I was not alone. Uh, and what we are, of course, talking about is the Mass Effect trilogy. And I had gotten to the very tail end of Mass Effect 3, and then could not quite bring myself to finishing the game. Um, I am here to report good news, I guess. I have effectively finished Mass Effect 3 from the Legendary Trilogy, therefore completing the whole thing, front to back. Congrats. Good job. Round of applause. Yes. It was uh, after after a lot of procrastination and playing a ton of other things that I had just gotten more interested in, but the last three things basically I had to do in the game, because I had done all the side content and all the submissions and stuff like that, um, the last things I had to do was the Citadel expansion, and then the final two missions... Uh, in the game, if you're not very familiar with it, basically there's there's one part where you have to go to a Cerberus base, and then you have to take the fight back to Earth to finish up the storyline and talk to the rest. Blow of the crew. Earth up, yes. Yeah, exactly. That's totally what happens. Um, there, I guess there is an option, but anyway, that's not that's not yeah. necessary. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the the Citadel expansion, I I felt like from a nostalgic standpoint was probably the sticking point, the roadblock that I was getting into the most. Um, mostly because that's the part where it's kind of a fun romp where you and all the crew get together and you get to do something. And it, it goes a little bit more into the, you know, recapping of all of the stories that you've had with all of these, these uh, characters over the course of three games. And then you throw a big party. And, uh, ah, yes, the party. Dance, dance, revolution. And uh, whoever's still alive by that point, uh, they get to sit around and they uh, talk and you have conversations with them and everything at this big apartment that Anderson's given you on the Citadel. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun uh, for me because I was playing a Paragon and I was also able to keep, uh, well, pretty much anyone I could keep alive, alive. But I am also uh, very aware that depending on how your playstyle went, this may have seen... Uh, very out of character for the rest of the storyline um, because uh, considering the amount of death and destruction and everything that's going on around you, uh, this is tonally very different 
I would like to see what that becomes like if you're playing Shepard as uh, what renegade. Yeah. Well, but also killing off as many of your party members as possible. Yeah, it's going to be a very lonely party. So yeah, I, I'd I, like to see that. <laughs> I will say that if uh, if you happen to, I will recommend watching the Never Knows Best video, uh, where he he did an analysis of the Mass Effect trilogy and. Uh, when he decided to try a renegade playthrough, not really like a genocidal shepherd, but an incompetent one that isn't really capable of making decisions rationally. Should not be commander. Should shepherd. not be, but is in this position and has and is angry about it. Played through like that and got to the Citadel part, which is the first time he had ever played this, uh, and realized. He hated this, because tonally, it changed everything. Because, like, Shepard's killed people, like, sometimes not even because he needed to. <laughs> and, and now they're sitting around and they're having a good laugh about it, and I understand. Because there's not a lot of um, changes that happen in the storyline uh, that lead to that. They're, they're still going to have a fun party at the end. Um, but for me, me, I was playing as uh, Paragon... And uh, everybody was, uh, for the most part, alive, and uh, I tried to do the correct or right thing for the majority. Uh, so it felt wistful and magical for me. There you go. Um, but uh, getting through that, then it was just a matter of those last two missions that are a slog, but it is the end game. And then you wrap up on Earth, you have last conversations with the crew that you're running with in 3... And then you get to the final decision. Uh, if people are not familiar with Mass Effect 3, legendarily, it has a little bit of an anticlimactic ending. Where, after making all these choices over the course of three games uh, that do lend itself mostly to the war assets that you have at the end, you are basically presented with walking up to one of three different choices and picking it. And for the most part, pushing a button. Yeah, for the most part, doesn't really change except for some of the ending screens, based on what you've done. Um, there will be ones that are missing if there are crew that are dead. Um, you will get flashbacks that will remind you of the most important people that, for you, who were on your mission, uh, in in those last moments, um, and you will get different beams. You will get a blue, a red, or a green beam that wash over the, uh, you know, the galaxy, and there are differences in how that shakes out for, like, your, your end cutscene. Um, but for the most part, what you've done up to that point doesn't really take much effect after that, that entity. So this isn't your point. Fallout New Vegas ending where the factions you've helped or obliterated actually come up and be like, oh, you killed all the boomers. In Fallout New Vegas, you will uh, get lines of endings that get cut off to you if you have made those factions mad at any point. Uh, and there are factions that simply will not work with you at the end. 
Um, mm-hmm. And uh, to the point where if you're a genocidal maniac in that game, there's really only one option that you're presented with uh, yeah. at the end. Uh, but Mass Effect is different. Um, no matter how you know renegade or paragon you were, you will be presented with those same three options. Um, and I did all three of them because why not? I want to see how yeah. this changes. Uh, mostly to see that, yeah, it, it didn't change a ton about it, but there are some nuances to those cutscenes and some some little changes that happen between them. Not a huge departure. I was glad that I finished it. It probably will not be something that I go back to again. I don't really think I, I have any interest in going back and playing the Renegade storyline because of that very reason. I know I know how it's going to end. It's going to be the same three choices presented to me at the end. You will get the option to destroy the Reapers. You will get the option to control them, or you will get the option to synergize uh, organics and synthetics. Uh, those are your three options, and it doesn't really matter how good or bad you've been in the playthrough, and I do find that that was a missed opportunity, especially considering that there was such lead-up when you think back to it about those three games and the choices that you could make. I didn't really see it from the Renegade point of view, but I have seen, actually, the Never Knows Best and uh, Your Favorite Son's videos do a good job of explaining this, that, like, in the first game, I'll give you an example. There's the Rachni Queen. You get the option to save the Rachni Queen and let the Queen go off in space, or to kill off the Queen. And so if you're a paragon, like me, you let the Rachni Queen go, and eventually in 3, uh, she will come back in a mission, uh, because she has, they, they tried to indoctrinate her as she was leaving, and uh, you can try to save her again. In a Renegade playthrough, you can kill the Ragni Queen, and in the third game, you're still going to have the mission, and it turns out there was another Ragni Queen that could get indoctrinated, so you still just do the mission, it's just another Ragni Queen instead of the one you saved in the first game. Again, missed opportunities here, because my, yeah. my thought process was that if I didn't save the Ragni Queen, that whole mission doesn't happen. My end takeaway was that I did have a lot of fun playing the trilogy. I did like the characters and the development that they had over several games and how they could change and evolve over the course of the game. And that it was perhaps too ambitious for what it ended up being. Uh, that it was the first time that I had really seen a game studio say, we're going to make three games where the direct response to what you do in the first one will translate into the second, translate into the third, and that we're literally going to make a trilogy where the decisions that you make will affect the overall story. And so for the ambition that BioWare put into that, I have to applaud it, but I also have to criticize it for the fact that I don't think it really delivered on it, in a meaningful way at the end. I was glad that I played through it again. I was glad I got to play the Legendary Edition because it definitely looks a lot better. But ultimately, um, yeah, I, I get all the criticisms that were levied at it, especially by the very end because it doesn't really affect, like, feel like your player choices really have any meaningful effect on how the story wraps up at the end. Yeah, it's hard to actually make a story where you make actual impactful choices mm. in a game and have them actually do things with the game world and characters. 
that isn't just like one set scripted way because then you have to change the world for different things so i understand where it's ambitious to want to do it but it's really hard to do it the way that would be best i'm thinking that the model that you might have seen from other games where there's there's a real story and an arc to a singular game and then there's just other installments and the series might work better uh but i mean even then to be clear it, there, there's even problems with other examples that I could give you. Like, one of my favorite games of all time is Deus Ex. But, when they had to do a sequel to it, and they did Invisible War, they had to figure out a way to make, like, all of those choices possible after the fact. So that, like, all of the endings are like the ending <laughs> so there's no like canonical one that is a, a problem that you you end up with with the these sort of epics but you know i still think that they stand as a testament to uh the ambition of rpgs the landing didn't get stuck next one next one now you, the, you know what the next space epic is going to be for me though yes yeah starfield yes. We'll see. We'll see how deflated I feel when Bethesda does it. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, I'm just wondering for folks out there listening, uh, what did you feel when you eventually finished Mass Effect Three? And oh yeah, did, what what are your feelings about Starfield? Are you gonna play it when it comes out? I have Game Pass, so I'm gonna play it regardless. But um, let us know in the comments down below, and uh, that might just lead us on to our next topic, Alex. So one of the big criticisms that uh, was levied uh, with the Mass Effect series that I, I luckily did finish was the idea that the player choices didn't necessarily affect the story at the end. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that as a phenomenon, mostly in tabletop terms, because I worry that when people come up with like their epic campaigns, there may be a uh, a bit of an uh, interest, a, a self-interest of making sure that the storyline still progresses through, regardless of the players taking actions. That you still want your big bad guy at the end, that you still want the big wrap-up, that finale, uh, and that it can make the players' choices feel a little bit toothless. That they didn't do all that much to get there uh, and that for RPGs uh, especially for tabletop ones where the player agency should be taking focus I worry about the idea that uh, that you you'll eventually wrap up your campaign boy that would be a nice feeling to actually finish a campaign right. but that if you actually did finish the campaign it wouldn't necessarily feel like your choices had weight that it felt hollow and so, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. What could we do to make sure that your character choices actually do affect the story? Um, and I'm going to just start by saying, first of all, being willing to throw out what the end story is. <laughs> I, think, I think literally just being willing 
to say that the story that you had planned ain't necessarily going to be the story. I think a better idea for that even would be to not have a definitive ending in mind when you're planning this. Yep. Yep. So say this is the bad guy. <laughs> Here's the thing he's doing. Mm-hmm. These are the problems they need to solve and however they solve them will de- determine like what happens. Sure. Sure. Like, oh, they let the bad guy go. Maybe he comes back. Oh, they killed him. Oh, they murdered his whole family. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's options. If you don't pre-write the whole ending, you can just kind of go with, oh, the players are choosing to burn down the whole town to kill this one guy. Well, okay, I guess that works. But also, here are now all the issues they have caused by burning down the town. Right, you might have just raised an entire militia to come up against you because, actually, you're the bad guys. You were the bad guys the whole time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, at that point, the villain of our story becomes the hero and tries to track down the evil party that you have created. See, what I hear you saying, basically, to me is stop trying to overplan things, Nathan. Which, which, frankly, you know me well enough to know that that's not something I'm good at doing. I will probably overplan. Um, I had like a a layout of kind of what I wanted my end story to be by the time I was like three episodes into Rift Hunters. You gotta uh, be less precious with your game world and characters and storyline. Yeah. Here's what I told uh, a friend of mine the other day when they were trying to figure out like a reason players would do a thing or a place for them to go or whatever. I'm like. I think you're planning too much. I think what you don't realize is that players never do what you want them to do. Right. So making a grandiose grandiose plan on like, oh, they can do the, go there and do this and find out this one thing. It's like, are they even going to go there and look at the thing you want them to? Right. <laughs> right. Because unless you make it so that the buy-in is, is tight... And you drop the hint, and your players are like, ah, we should go do that. Uh, Unless you're doing that, it's it's likely that your plans will never be found out. There is a counter to that, which is that you could have something planned where you could put it into other scenarios if they go in this direction rather than this direction. But we get back to the problem that we were discussing at the very beginning of this, which is the players feeling like they actually had an effect on the storyline. And so if I say, regardless of whether they're going here or they're going here, they're going to meet the same people, then they don't actually have much effect on the storyline. Their their choices have been, like, pre-scripted. So I should also, I guess, probably be okay with just saying that if they're not going here that aspect of the story is just not going to be relevant. Which is hard. (laughs) It is. Another thought, taking off of what you were saying before, is maybe the big bad guy at the end really isn't the big bad guy. It's the one that you thought was going to wrap up the storyline, except then your party did a whole bunch of other stuff, and the fallout from that is something that you're going to have to contest with, or what happens past that and the characters that rise out of that are something that you're going to have to deal with. 
No. It comes down to like the older style, the old school style, older, mm-hmm. like OSR yeah. and uh, whatever versions of D&D where people would play it and it was, oh yes, I'm not creating a campaign, I'm creating a world and the players get to generate what happens. Yes, that old school way, which uh, there's there's at least one game that is still ongoing from that era that is still that is still probably around. probably having the ability to do improv and kind of just wing it mm-hmm. uh where the players do a thing and you react to it letting them kind of choose what happens in the story mm-hmm. is a really good skill to have because then when players don't do what you want or if you as you said if this aspect of the story that you think is really exciting and cool is something they think is dumb and don't want to touch then suddenly you don't have to scramble you don't have to go oh i just that's the entire storyline and you guys don't want to do it it's like either pretty please guys will you do it can you can you just buy into it for me and if they don't want to then it's like all right well i don't have a game but on the other side of it it's like okay well if you're not buying into that then you guys are over here doing this so i'll build off on what you're doing yeah so just having that ability to kind of go with the flow is really good as a both like a dungeon master or gm or as a world builder i think sure because that way when your players decide they don't want to investigate the rift or whatever you had done in Rift Hunters and they mm-hmm. want to go off and do something else, yeah, you can just organically figure out what's going on. There was probably a way that I could have even constructed that where there was almost a bounty board where there were several different options that they would have in front of them and then that would have just decided kind of the trajectory that we were going to be going on. And had I yeah. to do it over again, I might have tried that. Um, but uh, I think had you to do it over again, yeah, you should probably have a really set in stone session zero with your players, especially considering that one's for a show yes. where it's, hey, what do you guys want out of the game? Mm. And like, what are you looking for in a story in a game? And here's what I would like to do. Can we? do this and i understand that for that specific one it was kind of trying to showcase how that game setting or system can be used in a multitude of ways i assume yeah part of it was Um, yes Mm -hmm. but just being able to especially for a a show and not just a home game i feel like it's all right we're doing this for a performance piece so you guys kind of should go with the performance i'm trying to give you Right. I know. I feel like that entire. I don't think that fell apart because of you. That th- fell apart for a lot of a host of other reasons. Actually, that yeah, had nothing I to feel, do with the game. I feel like, <laughs> like we did session zero prep to get everybody like up to speed on what we kind of expected, but maybe not in that aspect of like what people wanted out of the game. And I think that yeah. if we were doing something that was not necessarily for a performance, especially, I'd want to do that i just mostly from just side note on if you're if you're doing something for live stream or performance that like you know is going to be on a platform you kind of assume that what you're going to be producing is actually mostly for the people that are watching and if you're not doing it what you're doing is mostly for the people that are specifically playing like it's solely for them the gm and the players can have a lot of fun and a storyline and do a lot of cool stuff 
in a performance, but your focus is going to be more drawn to the people that are watching and yeah. making sure that they have something that they're interacting with and watching and enjoying. So it is very different. Uh, and even in live streams that I've done, uh, I might possibly have played characters that I would not normally have just wanted to play if I was doing a home game um, that are more big and, you know, uh, flamboyant kind of characters that register better as, uh, as performance characters. Yeah. Like, I like Snowball just fine, but Snowball doesn't necessarily work for a home game. You know, uh, as 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 a character, I don't necessarily think that I would play Snowball as, as in a home game because that's not the kind of character he is. In a, a storyline, I want to imagine that the players have more agency, but I feel like in a cinematic quality, which is sort of like what you experience with you know Twitch streams and and live performances. There is a narrative through way, and there kind of has to be, so that you know that there is an end goal that you're going toward. Um, but most of us aren't playing that way. Like, we'll, we'll just be honest. Most people, when they, when they pick up a Dungeons & Dragons or any other myriad of TTRPGs that are out there, um, they're doing it for the enjoyment of the home game that they're in. And so I think that making sure that it's not the same experience that those players would have if they picked up a video game, a Mass Effect trilogy, for instance, is very important. Because in those games, no matter how well they're, they're done, there are a finite number of possibilities that you can run through. And in tabletop, there isn't. You really don't have a finite number that we know of. Right. Technically, I guess there's a finite number, but we don't know how many possibilities there are. And so trying to figure out a way that it feels like your players actually directly affect the storyline is important for the players that are playing. And so the big thing I would suggest is that when players take any kind of action that you think is going to affect the storyline, that you want to note it and that it should come back in some way. Uh, and, and if they do something that's definitely putting a damper in your plans, those actions should definitely have weight and consequence, uh, which makes it much more engaging because now you can see the fallout of the things that you've done <laughs> and the things that your characters have done that have led you to this point. If you out there have any ideas about what you might want for uh, creating an effect on the storyline. Uh, if you have any suggestions about what you'd like to give players to show that the storyline has indeed been affected by their actions, please let us know. Uh, suggestions would be very helpful. If we do get a lot of them, uh, we might do a follow-up and uh, talk about some of those uh, because I'd be interested to know what everybody has uh, come up with. Uh, to really make it feel like there's weight to the storyline in a way that you might not have felt when you finished Mass Effect 3. <laughs> We get to come to an ending of this episode of Total Pebble Knockdown. Indeed. And reveal it was the man behind the curtain. 
as you rip down your green screen. Green screen! Ooh! Perfect. There we go. See? It's, we pull the man behind the curtain. Uh, anyway, Alex, if uh, folks want to see the men behind the curtain of this production, where could they go on the internet? Uh, home. Yep. Our home at TotalPebbleLockdown.com. That's right. You can even check out our Patreon while you're there. And uh, make sure to check out Titanium Mine and Creatures while you're on the website. Uh, all sorts of cool stuff over there. Also, catch us on our live shows. We do a live show uh, on our YouTube channel every month, first Saturday of the month. And you can find us on podcast apps. Every podcast app known to mankind, rate and review and subscribe if you have not already. And don't forget to check us out on social media, whatever the social medias are called these days. I am at Citanium. I am at EXP Limited, and the show is at Pebble Knockdown. I think it's called X these days, but, you know, bad branding decision is bad. Yeah, it's also apparently called Meta, but, like, I, I, can't, I can't keep up with this stuff anymore. Uh, the point is, uh, I am not buying a $1 million game about uh, co-op horror. That should be the takeaway for everybody that's listening to this. Bye. Bye. <laughs>it works well for people who have like twitch streams where this is something that they can do and it's fun if if you know the crew gets together and does one of these little make em ups when oprah gave you a brand new car that car you have to pay taxes on because you've received his gift it looks very red. That's the only thing I'm getting from the screenshots. It looks very blown out and red. <laughs> so that's that's the horror aspect. It's all the blood. Oh, good, great. <laughs>